sound of the horns tells you only one thing. It's time once again for Yukon 360. That's the only podcast in the entire known universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is our 38th episode. We're coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Stores, Connecticut. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Best. How you doing? We've got a pretty exciting summertime lineup for folks this week, I think. Yeah. Yeah? I think so. Why don't we start off with news? Oh, that's different. That's different. Yeah. Let's change it up a little bit. <laughs> you, you didn't toss it to me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, thought you were just, I thought you were taking it. I thought you were taking the reins. I'll take it. I'll take it. I have research news. An international team of researchers that included a Yukon engineer has found that a common drug used to alleviate side effects of cancer treatment may also make cancer treatments more successful. In the report published in the journal ACS Nano, the team reported that dexamethasone, a steroid often given to decrease swelling and nausea and relieve side effects of chemotherapy treatments, may also enhance the effectiveness of the chemotherapy itself. UConn Assistant Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering Matthew Stuber and his Process Systems and Operations Research Laboratory ran their colleagues' experiments through a computer model of how fluid and molecules flow through a tumor to discover that the drug makes it easier for fluid and drugs to penetrate tumor tissue. Collaborators at the Universities of Tokyo and Cyprus found the treatment to be effective on breast cancer in animal models, and more testing will show how it can be used to be most effective in humans. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, could be really good. Ken, what's going on? A question first. Do you know what the number one source of water pollution is in the United States? Um, poor, nope. poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I go with that as well. Storm water runoff. Oh. Okay, makes Number sense. one source. In the Northeast here particularly, flooding caused by runoff is a huge problem. It's growing as climate change produces more intense storms than in the past. A Yukon Extension Program is helping Connecticut towns comply with new state and federal requirements for reducing water pollution, and they're saving the money. We've talked about the Center for Land Use Education and Research, known as CLEAR, on this podcast before. They're working with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, commonly known as DEEP, to provide outreach and support for lots of municipalities. CLEAR is a partnership of the Yukon Extension and Department of Natural Resources and Environment, both in the College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources. Lots of paving going on in the urban areas, and uh, that prevents water from going into the ground, enriching the soil. But the pollutants then go wash right down into rivers, lakes, and into Long Island Sound. Towns are responsible for the contaminants that they send to the storm river. So CLEAR has set up workshops, webinars, communication forums, such as a listserv and a website with a variety of information about the permit, cost-effective strategies, and tools to help the talents to comply. Just two years into this program, estimated $1.6 million in savings have been provided to both the state and the towns, with each town saving about $10,000. So that's pretty good news. Good work. Is that really how the two of you are going to read those Husky headlines? I mean, those are good stories, but you know, your husky headline game is pretty bad, both of you. I mean, what does pretty that weak, mean? pretty pathetic. What does that mean? Trash talk? That's trash talk. <laughs> what I'm doing there is a little bit of trash talk, which is an incredible segue into Ken's story for us this oh, week. I just Wait. thought you were a real jerk all I, of a sudden. Well, I am. I am a real jerk, but there's, 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 my jerkness has a purpose this time. Good job. That was good. Well, you may recall then, Tom that several years ago when our men's basketball team was going to play against Syracuse uh, for the first time uh, since the Orange left the Big East, the f- 
way back when, there was some social media trash talk online among the uh, Huskies. I think we were involved the, in that, probably. Well, we were not going to reveal that. <laughs> uh, so, so you have to remember, of course, that when we're talking about sports fans, uh, we're using the shorthand for the actual phrase, sports fanatics. Mm. The competition on the field of play is also intense, and trash talk has been going on for a long time from playgrounds to big stadiums. Uh, I remember Muhammad Ali's taunts and bragging before his fights against all of his challengers, and now with mixed martial arts and the NBA and the NFL, it's pretty obvious what's going on. Thinking of, what's his name, Conor McGregor, he's really Yes, yes. But does trash talk work as a distraction, you might ask? Karen McDermott just completed a doctoral thesis in communications here at UConn on trash talk, which in academic parlance is known as emotional manipulation and cognitive distraction as strategy, the effects of verbal insults on motivation and performance in a competitive setting. That's trash talk. She says that this is one of the first studies of its kind to examine whether trash talk actually does affect players during a competition. She came over to our studios, and we talked about the study, and I started by asking her, how did she get interested in this subject? So when I first started looking into trash talk, I decided that I wanted to look at this. I I was enamored with the reaction to Richard Sherman's post-game rant after the playoff game against the 49ers, where he just kind of went off on air. There was a very strong negative reaction to it, but there was also a very positive reaction as well. His Twitter following doubled, a sale of his jerseys went up. Most of his sponsors started playing his commercials again. And I said, you know, what's going on here? We have this kind of love-hate relationship with trash talk. So I wanted to start studying it. And I studied it originally from the perspective of fans and how they reacted to it. As I began to look into it and the research that had been done on it, I wasn't finding a lot. Part of the reason is because a lot of researchers don't actually call it trash talk because it is a slang term. So you have to try to find the actual terms that people are using, uh, like competitive incivility is one of the terms that somebody, That's one the of the polite researchers, term. polite term that somebody uses. But even even looking at some of the more euphemistic terms for it, I still wasn't finding a ton of studies. And it's actually hasn't been until 2018, really, when I started working on my study, that I started finding more researchers were putting out work on trash talk. Now, you went in with a couple of hypotheses, which is the usual approach of research. You had a question you wanted to answer and based on certain assumptions and, and ideas. What were those ideas? I changed gears after looking at the audience reaction to Trash Talk, and I really wanted to get a sense of what was happening on a psychological and emotional level for people who were the targets of Trash Talk. Again, because there hadn't really been any studies that looked at this up until this point, I I was starting from scratch, and I was really going based off of trying to think of my own competitive experiences. I played volleyball when I was younger, had engaged in trash talk myself, and had been the, the recipient of trash talk, and was trying to think of how did I react to it? What were the feelings that I was feeling? What were the, what was I thinking? Looking at some of the research that had been done, how people define trash talk, what they thought was going on, but nobody had actually tested it. So I really had to look across multiple disciplines and areas of study to kind of try and piece together what I thought was going on. And based on definitions of my own feelings about what I had been feeling and and thinking at the time, that trash talk was 
a cognitive distraction. It was somebody trying to take you out of thinking about your performance task and think about something else. It was also an emotional manipulation. That's actually, you know, somehow one of the sources defined it. Because part of the intent of trash talk is to make you angry or to shame you or to get you thinking about, I'm not good enough. Am I really competing here? Disrupting your emotions such that you are not, no longer able to perform up to your best standard at whatever task you're performing. Those were kind of the two main avenues that I took in terms of constructing my statistical model. All of those lead into your motivation to perform, that in order to perform effectively, you need to have a certain motivation to, to move forward. Whether you are distracted, whether you are angry, whether you're feeling shame, that is going to affect your motivation to perform. And having looked at this now, using the model of a game, bringing your test subjects, for lack of a better phrase, into compete against each other and then inject some of the verbal uh, jabs that would serve as the so-called trash talk. What did you find that confirmed or surprised you in the end result of, of your study? It was really interesting. We definitely found that people were distracted. And there were two levels of distraction. There's an auditory distraction where you hear a sound and you pay attention to it. What is that sound? Am I in trouble? Do I need to worry about what that sound is? But once you realize that auditory distraction is not in, in danger, you can filter it out. Then you need a cognitive distraction. So there's that idea that, okay, now what's the informational value of this distraction? And it gets, gets you to dwell on it. I found both auditory and cognitive distraction, but it was specifically the cognitive distraction that was affecting people's motivation to perform, that it was affecting their ability to focus on their task. I also did find that people were feeling both anger and shame. And the interesting thing that I found, I had originally conceived anger and shame to be two opposite reactions, that people would either feel one or the other strongly, that if you felt angry, it was going to motivate you more. There, have, there were studies on, you know, limited studies on trash talk suggesting, and actually performance studies suggesting that anger is a motivator to perform because it creates that energy. So I anticipated that it would produce this energy to perform. And the other one was shame, that you would kind of withdraw and it would negatively affect your performance. What I found actually is that both anger and shame were related to each other, that people didn't feel one or the other, they, they tended to feel both, and that in many cases, what actually happened is that people felt shame more strongly and that it made them angry. And that affected their performance. So that was something that I hadn't expected. But your idea was that there would be some distraction and loss of concentration because of what was going on. And that was confirmed in what you what you saw. Yes, yes, absolutely. But the different thing was the anger-shame dynamic for the emotion? I anticipated that anger was going to increase participants' motivation to perform. What I actually found is that it decreased their motivation to perform, which was unexpected because I had anticipated that they were going to feel this need to beat their opponent and it was going to spur them to want to perform better. And for some reason, it didn't. And part of that had to do with the performance task itself. One of the things that I found was that it wasn't just the idea of a competitive task that the particular competitive task itself did matter. Trash talk is very often used and associated with sport and the particular 
activity that I used in my experiment was actually a video game competition. So you had people who were very interested in playing video games, and then there were people who were very interested in sports. But the people who were interested in sports didn't necessarily feel motivated to be angry and, and motivated to play that game when the trash talk was directed at them. So that was kind of an unusual finding. The other thing that uh, you mentioned in your conclusion was the preparation for competition that was kind of counterintuitive to what you found in, in the study. Right. So one of the things is that, you know, when athletes prepare, they, you know, they practice, they train, they weight train, and there are now sports psychologists, and part of their preparation is to help athletes visualize success. I, When I was growing up, sports psychology was just kind of coming into practice, but it was, you know, visualize yourself being successful, see yourself making that shot or doing whatever. It was very much about self-actualizing, but there isn't really an idea in sports psychology, to my knowledge, about inoculating yourself against these auditory or verbal attacks from trash talk. We know they're coming. Athletes deal with them all the time. We practice defensive drills all the time uh, on the court in, in sports, but you don't practice defensive mental drills. And part of the reason I don't think they can do that is because there hasn't been enough study on trash talk to be able to formulate a, a kind of defense. The study that I did is one of the first and only that I've found that it has actually attempted to map out the cognitive and emotional processes that a person will actually feel while being the target of trash talk. This is all like the head game of sports. Right. Uh, where the five inches or whatever the number is between the ears can make or break the outcome based on how you react to the situation. And this is sort of like the wild card in the situation. We always think of sports as being very physical games, but they are absolutely mental games. You know, plenty of coaches will tell you to get your head in the game because having that mental edge and being mentally focused is incredibly important. And that's especially important in, in sports that require, uh, you know, hand-eye coordination and, and things like that. But I've also had friends who participated in just running sports where you had to be in an all-out sprint who have assured me that there is still a mental component in running, doing a straight race. So there's always that mental component. And trash talk is another form of offense that athletes have to play defense again. Well, as Karen has told me, this is really the first step in really trying to understand whether trash talk is something that people can work with and against. And as she as she mentioned in the piece, there's plenty of investigation that needs to go on. So this is a new area of inquiry. Very cool. This uh, reminds me of all the things that UConn student section does to distract the other team. Does that count as trash talk? The waving of the arms oh, yeah. during free throws and... Yep, reading the, reading the newspaper right. during the introductions. <laughs> it gets in your head, maybe. It gets in your head. <laughs> we'll find out. It goes out. on on every campus. Yes. You know, what the, there are very few things that I love doing as a reporter and as a UConn employee, mm-hmm. but uh, two of my favorite experiences in both instances involved the person you talk to next. Oh, yeah? Nick Bellantoni. 
Yes. Who uh, I, I did a big profile on when I worked for the Journal Inquirer. And then when he was uh, retiring from yes. UConn, I did another big profile I read on that him. and used that to inform my interview. He's, with he's him. a fascinating guy. He a is. fellow Manchester native like oh, me. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Very interesting. So I caught up with him about his recent book and some of the lessons he learned throughout his career. This past fall, Emeritus State Archaeologist Nick Bellantoni published his first commercial book, The Long Journey's Home, The Repatriations of Henry Opaka Haia and Albert Afraid of Hawk. The prologue of the book begins in 1992, with a young Native Hawaiian woman sitting up in bed, awakened to a voice telling her he wants to come home. You tell a really compelling story of kind of how this all came to be, about the two Native women, one in Hawaii, one a Lakota, who kind of had these, at different times, had these calls from their ancestors that they wanted to come home. That's exactly right, kind of spiritual calls, one in a dream and one in a kind of a visitation. Very powerful. And so these men died and were buried in Connecticut, and so both of these women ended up coming to you because you were the state archaeologist. So you tell the story of their lives and how you help these people bring their family members home. Tell me a little about why you wrote this book and what that was all like for you. Well, you know, we've 27 years as the Connecticut state archaeologist, we had a number of amazing experiences. But the reason I wrote this book was because this transcends archaeology, forensic science, history. It's all in there. But it also is working with contemporary Native peoples in fulfilling the wishes to bring an ancestor home who died far from their original homeland. So it was not about just the past in our work as an archaeologist, but working with contemporary populations and seeing the meaning of these repatriations for not only the family, but the entire Lakota and uh, Hawaiian communities. Because the reasons they came here a lot of times were because of the various impacts of colonialism, colonialism imperialism, exactly. everything that was happening, you know, as the Western world inflicted itself on Native populations. And with that, of course, becomes the diseases that were spread, old world diseases that uh, led to massive deaths in both communities and, and left people with a kind of a cultural confusion. The old ways weren't working. People were dying and trying to find answers to that. It was very traumatic what was happening to them. In the prologue, you wrote that repatriating the physical remains of these men left you with a profound respect for the importance of family, heritage, and spirituality among Native communities in response to changes in the modern world and gave rise to your own personal journey as an archaeologist. And I try to downplay it, but by the end of the book, you've seen where I've come from, too, mm -hmm. because it has affected me personally and professionally. How did you become Connecticut State Archaeologist, and what was your journey to that? Well, it was nothing I had planned you know, I'm sure I played in the sandbox when I was a kid, but I don't remember uh, having any. Actually, I was a very poor student. They kept me back in grammar school. I just about made it through high school. I mean, my, my parents were brought down to the last week as to whether I was going to graduate. Oh, wow. So I, had, I never took college boards. I never thought anything about going to college. I figured I would just work with uh, my uncles on construction or do something like that. However, this was uh, in the mid-60s, and Vietnam was going on, and I ended up going into the military. I served in the United States Navy. After four years, I came out a bit more mature. The earlier apathy in my younger life really changed at that point, and I you know, decided I want to go to school. I want to go to college. No college would take me, <laughs> including the University of Connecticut. Yeah. 
But Bellantoni says a local community college took a chance on a returning veteran and required him to take probationary courses during the summer to ensure he was ready for school in the fall. He ended up graduating with honors. And then eventually I would take a course in anthropology and see, gee, this is kind of interesting stuff and ended up changing my major. I did my undergraduate degree at Central Connecticut State College back then and applied to UConn for graduate work because I knew I wanted to go on in this field of archaeology if I could. The first year, they turned me down again, but I was persistent, reapplied, and uh, this time they probably figured, well, we're not going to get rid of this guy unless he... So, and um, then you stuck around for And <laughs> so I, I ended up getting receiving my doctorate here in 1987. And as I received my doctorate, a position opened up but created by the General Assembly, position of a full-time state archaeologist. So I applied, and they were foolish enough to hire me, and I uh, <laughs> ended up staying here at the university. So... Uh, and now, I, you know, I teach in the anthropology department. So you talk here. about revenge. <laughs> right. You showed them. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, I was very lucky. It was nothing I had planned. I, I just stepped into it. I was a late bloomer, mm-hmm. and I was very lucky to find a little bit more direction as I got older. Do you know what it was about anthropology and archaeology that kind of grabbed you back in those early days? You know, the whole spectrum of the study of human behavior And, of course, archaeology is taught in anthropology, and so it deals with the human past, trying to interpret that past from the recovery of physical remains. The would-be construction worker also liked the fact that he'd be digging in the ground. It's actually excavating. digging. There's a physical component to it. Right. And I really love that. I I love it to this day. I I enjoy being in the field. And uh, so that whole uh, idea of of field work and sweating and, and, and yet bringing your data back to a laboratory and interpretation and writing all just what I wanted to do, and I was very, very fortunate to be able to do it. Much of the attention Bellantoni and his team received while he was state archaeologist involved the most sensational stories, including debunking a claim that a skull fragment the Soviets found belonged to Hitler, for example. But those stories aren't what were most important to Bellantoni. My next book is going to be on uh, some of the tomb projects. Another one of my claims to fame is that I've been in more historic colonial tombs than probably anybody Hmm. in all of America. And I was because of restoration to tombs in some cases, but also because of uh, vandalisms where I went in as part of... uh, crime scene investigations. Mm. And so um, I'm going to tell stories about my my tomb adventures. We were asked to go into the Henry Chauncey family mausoleum at Indian Hill Cemetery in Middletown because vandals had broken in Mm. um, and basically they stole the skull. They ripped through four burials that were in vaults. And these were very prominent people. Henry Chauncey actually was a builder of the Panamanian Railroad, extremely prominent and successful businessman in South America as well as North America. They broke in to him and his wife and two grandchildren and literally desecration of human skeletal remains and and, and coffin parts on the floor were uh, just horrible to see. We were able to do the forensic work on each one of the skeletons to help identify them, but also kind of using archaeological methods, if you will, within a uh, within a tomb, not in the ground. Uh, we were able to reconstruct the sequence of the vandalism, which helped the police. They they ended up apprehending an individual. Wow. And some of the information we supplied was useful in the courts to provide for a prison sentence. 
The archaeologist is used to people thinking he's like Indiana Jones, exploring ruins from ancient civilizations. But his career is proof that there's plenty to explore in a place like Connecticut. It's true. I mean, people don't think of Connecticut as the archaeological capital of the world. No. But we have an amazing cultural history here, a diverse history that goes back from the first Native Americans that came here uh, 11,000 years ago. And the fact that we could even tell you that story, you know, how those cultures changed into the historic times, is through archaeological investigation. It's in the ground and, and in how it's interpreted and, and the science behind all of that. Uh, but we also have that that delicate contact period when the first English came here interacting with Native Americans and the Dutch. The 17th century is just an incredible time frame of change. And part of that, we have historic documents that help us with that, but we also have archaeological sites that testify to that and teach us further of what's not in written documents. Through the development of our nation into the historic times, the Industrial Revolution and the water-powered mills into the 20th century. In fact, the state of Connecticut gave me authority to preserve and protect archaeological sites that are 50 years old or more, wow. which, which means uh, I qualified for the National Register about 20 years ago. <laughs> Part of my job uh, was not only preservation of these sites, but educating the public and students into what's here and why it's significant. I think part of the problem was in the early days, people would collect arrowheads. And of course, it sounded more like a hobby than anything and not a true real scientific endeavor. But starting around the 1960s or so, archaeology here became, especially through the efforts of the University of Connecticut, really became part of the, the scientific realm. And even today, I sometimes think that Everything that's been found has been found, and it's so untrue. We're finding sites every day. It's wow. amazing. And the work of Bellantoni and others just like him has helped us know a lot more than what happened long ago. I guess to some people, history could be boring, especially in trying to keep up with modern technology and changing social conditions. We live in an age of such great culture change that it's hard to keep up. And so the past becomes obscure. It becomes blurred. You know, I tried to tell my students here at UConn that we weren't just dumped here in the 21st century with smartphones and, and all these computers and so forth. We come out of a heritage, and not to understand your heritage, you're missing something about yourself, who you are. That past, whether it's the nation's past or your family's past, your community's past, the university's here's past, that gives us a sense of belonging. It gives us a sense of social identity. And hopefully it gives us self-esteem. We know who we are because of where we've come from. And we shouldn't forget that. I tell my students, every family has an important story. You know, you didn't have to come over on the Mayflower. You have an important story. And to learn that is part of learning about yourself, getting back to the long journeys home. That's what was so significant to me about this, about these Native people who were looking for their past for inspiration. Not only just to bring some uh, an ancestor home, but to celebrate their heritage and who they are, especially in cases where much of that had been taken away from them. So, yeah, the past is important because it's us. Well, Nick always has great stories. Yes. You got to hear some of them directly from him. I did. He was a lot of fun to talk to. We honestly could have talked for a long time. I had to cut it short because I had to edit it down. Speaking of fascinating. Yeah. How about the three of us go see a talk on campus? You know, lots of speakers, all kinds of interesting subjects come to UConn every semester. Yeah. 
How about we go see this new talk that Subog sponsored? It's called, uh, hmm, White Power, Leaders <laughs> of the White Revolution. Oh, no. We can't do that because this was in May of 1972. Gosh. A time of great ferment. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, I was fascinated by this because this still is an issue today yes, with uh, controversy over white supremacist speakers mm-hmm. coming, especially to public universities, because we have a much harder time saying no than private universities because right. of the pesky First Amendment. Back in the spring of 1972, Subog, the original idea, and this is not a good idea either, but the original idea had been to get white supremacists on one side and then members of the Black Panther Party on the other and have a debate. The Black Panthers in Connecticut refused to participate, saying that the forum would dignify the white supremacists. So the whole thing was going to become a white supremacist-only panel discussion called White Power, Leaders of the White Revolution. And invited speakers were from the Ku Klux Klan, the American Nazi Party, the National States Rights Party, something called the White Action Movement, or WAM, and the National Renaissance Party. So this was originally scheduled for May of 1972, but once the uh, Subog started putting ads in the daily campus, angry students occupied Subog's office. Subog was actually sponsoring this, not just fringe This was Subog. Wow. So they didn't cancel it. They postponed it until September. And once again... What did that do? (laughs) What good did that do? They had a meeting where they solicited feedback from the student body, and uh, many people attended the meeting. Uh, and only two spoke in favor of having the panel discussion. Everyone else was against it. And they still thought it was a good idea to have No, they canceled it at that point. Oh, okay, they did cancel it. Oh, thank goodness. But that's when the American Civil Liberties Union got involved. Students had gone to them and said that this is a violation of free speech. They started investigating. Sticky wicket. And interestingly, another group opposed the cancellation was the Young Socialist Alliance, Hmm. which if you're a leftist sect train spotter type, they were a Trotskyist group that was big at the time. They said that this paved the way for suppression of other political speech. Which is a valid argument. Right. Yeah. And even though the Young Socialists and the CCLU argued that the discussion would be a way to expose the evils of racism, Larry Burton, who was a student at the time and he was president of the African-American Students Organization, said, quote, if you want to know about racism, stop any black student and ask him about it and he'll tell you firsthand experiences. Ultimately, Larry Burton's view prevailed, and Subog decided to cancel it. The CCLU ultimately decided they didn't really have grounds for a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. A a little coda to this is uh, James Madole, who was the leader of the National Renaissance Party, and a really weird guy. I mean, (laughs) he was the head of a Nazi party, so obviously he's kind of a strange guy. Mm. He was also um, a devil worshiper, and he was a science fiction fanzine editor. He had a lot of of odd interests. Varied interests. He showed up and threatened to sue. And he didn't really have grounds for a lawsuit, so then he resorted to issuing an open challenge for a debate against leftist professors, uh, saying he knew that a majority of students on campus were, in his words, quote, fed up with a daily diet of pro-Jewish and pro-Marxist propaganda. I wish we could, like, laugh about this and be like, oh, that was the 70s. That's the funny thing. So we can't. Even, like, reading the arguments back and forth and uh, the sort of the white supremacist groups are, like, portraying themselves solely as champions of free speech as opposed to these emissaries of this horrible ideology. It's uh, everything old is new again. Always. Mm -hmm. It's what we learn in the history corner and in archaeology, too. That's right. Tying it all together. Tying it all together. Trash talk. And trash talk. (laughs) Speaking of trash. Trash talking each side. Speaking of trash talk. Wow. Yeah, so fortunately, uh, UConn never did host an event called White Power Leading to the White Revolution. You know, but there's still time. A lot of stuff going on in there. A lot lot to examine. A lot to unpack. Still time. say. That brings us to a conclusion. very interesting conclusion. This was a roller coaster. I won't lie to you. It was. 
<laughs> a lot of fun on this one. We have fun. Fun's a good word. If you like to have fun, one of the most fun things that the teens are doing, I understand, that the young people are doing, is they are uh, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast. Yep. Big in the teen circles. On iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, because we're all over the place. We are. And do you know they're called podcatchers? They are called podcatchers, aren't they? I like they? that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Is that cool. a sport now? No, what? it's a it's the thing like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or like Pocket Casts, whatever the apps are that you can listen to your podcast on is called a podcatcher. Podcatcher. So whatever your favorite podcatcher is, just put up an, an honest review, which in this case would be five stars. You can follow us online on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can follow also an, a related account is uh, at Maine underscore old, which is lots of old pictures and uh, fun tidbits from UConn past. I'll put up some of the articles about the white revolution thing. Mm -hmm. Julie, anything you want people to know or do? No, go back and listen if you missed Jonathan the Husky and his handler last episode. That was a very, very popular episode. It was an extremely popular episode. good boy. He is such a good boy, and he's such a draw. No matter where you put him, he's just gold. So we got a lot of good listens for that. But if you haven't heard it, go back, listen, episode 37. I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka, and that's about it. Okay. Fridays from 8.30 to 10.30 in the morning. Darn right. 91.7 FM, WHUS, UConn Sound Alternative. Streaming online at whus.org. All right, everybody. Thanks once again. And in just two weeks, we'll be back in your ear space. I don't think we got into the vampires.